Life Out Loud is a literary nonfiction podcast series that features real student stories. Born in a John Jay College creative nonfiction writing classroom in the fall 2015 semester, Life Out Loud seeks to diversify the perspectives typically shared in the CNF genre. Our project aims to amplify voices seldom heard through artful truth-telling simply because we believe that all stories matter. We make them, and they make us. You can always listen at lifeoutloudpodcast.com. Hi there, and welcome back to Life Out Loud, a literary nonfiction podcast through which we tell true, maybe all too true stories. I'm Karen, one of your hosts today. And I'm Sam, a first-time host on tonight's episode. Hi, everyone. I'm Evelyn, a returning host ready to get into these stories tonight. And I'm Leisha. Thank you for joining us today on the fifth episode of our fifth season entitled Character Development. And I'm Rebecca. In this episode, two authors learn something quite real about themselves and the world around them through developing their acting skills. And I'm Alishva. Thank you all again for joining us. Now, let's get into the first story of the night. This story is by an author that has previously hosted and written several stories on the podcast, Francesca Cherry. Francesca is a senior at John Jay College, majoring in English with a minor in criminology. She was born in Massachusetts, but raised in Brooklyn practically all her life. With plans to become an advocate for social justice, she is passionate about criminal justice reform, often volunteering with the American Civil Liberties. During her free time, she enjoys singing, reading psychological thrillers, and writing romance novellas. Let's take a listen to Francesca's story entitled, Sassy is Funny. Growing up, my family and friends told me I was a good singer and actress, and I believed them. So, freshman year, I auditioned for the school's sing show. My newest friend, Shania, was auditioning with me. Shania was very into acting, and unlike me, she had a coach from middle school. Yet, it didn't intimidate me that we were going for the same parts. I was just excited that I had a chance to be a part of it all. As the line to audition grew shorter, my nerves gave me a slight tremble. I had already reviewed the small set of lines with Shania a million times, but I felt the urge to do it again. I won't lie, I'm getting kind of scared. I'm nervous too. Shania wouldn't stop fidgeting. Her shuffling was loud and jerky. Look at all these white girls. They're more likely to get the part of Princess Crystal than us, you know. I surveyed all the blondes and brunettes around us. Our school had only about 6% black people, even less so present at the audition. It hadn't occurred to me before, but right then I felt silly for not realizing it sooner. Still, I said, well, what if we're better actors than them? Do you really think they care if they cast a black or white girl? Shania gave me a side eye, one that made me feel dumb. You have to know how important looks and the norm are when it comes to these things. I studied Shania for a moment and realized by that logic, she was more likely to get it than me. We were both black, but she was mixed with curly hair and light skin. I didn't comment on it though. I really want this part. I stared down at the description of Princess Crystal. I could very well play the part of a lazy princess who only cared about herself and neglected her people. I've done far more complicated acting roles than that. I squared my shoulders. Shania leaned in, speaking low. 
I don't know how true it is, but I heard that the role was made specifically for this senior named Amanda. She's good friends with the sing leaders. How much you want to bet she's white? I shook my head, not wanting to accept this information. If I entertained the idea that they were only casting white people, then I might start crying. I wouldn't even entertain that idea because it was too ridiculous. But my resolve weakened a little. I could literally feel my shoulders slump. A part of me knew at the very least that it was possible. The world was shitty like that. I waited outside the door Shania had just walked through, and one of the seniors who was handling the lineups and scripts asked me who I was going for. When I informed him, his eyebrows jerked as he gave me a once-over. Good luck, he said and smiled fakely. At that point, I couldn't deny Shania's words anymore. I entered the room feeling like I was about to take a very important test I hadn't studied for. I walked in and said hello with a grin. I made sure my feet didn't shuffle, and I tried to roll the tension out of my shoulders one last time. Once I got into the scene, it wasn't hard to ease into the character. I was very familiar with the body language and tone of a self-righteous person. Penny the Penguin was even easier to do. She was shy and allowed the princess to walk all over her. When I was done, although it felt good, I also knew the wide smile and the numerous compliments from the judges didn't necessarily mean anything. Surprisingly, Shania and I both got callbacks for the part of Penny the Penguin and Shilala, some pregnant snow angel. I didn't have time to be disappointed about not getting a callback for Princess Crystal because the callback list was already short. Shania and I were the only ones who got callbacks for Shilala, so I figured that had to mean something. Shilala was a character that I hadn't even given a second thought to the day before. I reviewed her lines for the first time, my frown deepening the more I read. Not only was Shilala a minor character, but she was flat and unimpressive. I don't think I want this part as much as Penny. I don't know if I want it at all, actually. Shania shrugged. Me neither. But if they called us back when we didn't even do a reading for it, then they clearly think we might be a better fit for it. So you should give both the parts your all. Back in the audition room, after doing my second reading of Penny the Penguin, one of the leaders, Veronica, explained the situation to me. So, we're still kind of experimenting with Shilala, and after your audition yesterday, I think we found a good grasp on what her character should be. She was originally supposed to be pregnant, but we're chucking that idea. Veronica handed me a different sheet of paper. I skimmed the new set of lines for Shilala. I thought it would be more entertaining to have a pregnant snow angel constantly complaining than what I was seeing on the page, but instead I said, Really? What is she supposed to be like now? Veronica glanced at the person to her right, looking slightly pink, but she managed to flash me all her teeth. Well, she's always getting hit on by the abdominal snowman, and she's not at all interested, but he's very persistent. We were thinking that Shilala should be very... She struggled to find the word. Sassy. You know, just a lot of attitude overall. I nodded slowly. The thought came and went. They wanted the black girl to be sassy. 
I had seen it a million times in sitcoms, so it was normal. Whatever. Yet, I suddenly felt so awkward that I didn't know where to look or what to do with my arms. In all the acting I'd done in my 13 years of living, I'd never played a sassy character quite like the one they were hinting at. I didn't like the idea. It was new and instantly made me uncomfortable. My eyes swept the table of judges who were staring back at me expectantly. I didn't want to shy away from the challenge. This was the acting world and I wanted to be a part of it. There was a brief silence that filled the space until eventually I cleared my throat. Okay, I think I can do sassy. Veronica let out a small laugh. Okay, cool. We're ready when you are. The next day, the cast list was posted. Shania got the part of Penny the Penguin and I got casted as Shilala. I expected to be more disappointed, but instead I was just grateful. I had fumbled during my audition, trying five different techniques to capture Shilala as I went along. I didn't know if I should make her sass bold or subtle or if she should be loud or quiet. I alternated between portraying her as animated, using my hands to express, and just standing completely still. I knew my audition was subpar and messy, so I had no choice but to be grateful. One girl started crying immediately when she didn't see her name on the list. It made me feel even better. On the first day of rehearsal, when I noted that Shania and I were the only freshmen who got a part, everyone else was white seniors, that gratitude turned into pride. Random seniors who made up the chorus and dancers of Sing told us how lucky we were. They said it was rare for a freshman to get a lead. And as it turned out, Amanda did get the part of Princess Crystal. I struggled to get into my role. I knew that when it came to acting, you needed to be able to step out of your comfort zone. A super sassy snow angel who constantly rejected some guy was way out of my comfort zone. So I made sure to practice my lines in front of the mirror and even forced my sister to read with me in preparation for rehearsals. On the first night, my sister read over the lines and did that thing with her eyebrows. She made that face whenever she discovered my mom made the baked chicken that she hates. I don't really like this she Lala character. Is she supposed to be funny? I snatched my script from her. Oh, please. What do you know about what's funny, Jamie Lee? You're like three years old. She crossed her arms. Why are you getting annoyed? I'm just saying. Well, did I ask you to judge the writing or did I ask you to please read lines with me? I tilted my head. As I continued to practice, my sister's opinion became a looming thought in my head and my performance didn't get any less awkward. I couldn't seem to find the right pitch or body language that would allow me to deliver the lines comfortably. I knew that if I continued to feel this awkward, the character wouldn't be convincing. My struggle to bring the character to life consumed my thoughts during classes and study hours and even took time away from my homework because I was tirelessly attempting. At rehearsals, I grew tired of hearing Veronica single me out. Come on, Francesca, give me more, get into it, please. It was always said with that huge huff of hers and I could see she was on the verge of rolling her eyes. I knew that Veronica was constantly stressed out about having to manage the entire Sing production five days a week, but her frustration made me tear up each time.
Jimmy, the singwriter, calmly pulled me to the side one day and said we should have a private rehearsal where we went over my lines one by one. Jimmy grabbed me by the shoulders. I know you can do this, Francesca. The thing about sing is that you need to exaggerate. Don't hold back at all, even if it feels silly. This character has the potential to be the funniest part of the show. I must have made a face because he squeezed my shoulders. Seriously, I believe in you. That sounded super unrealistic. The gingerbread grandparents who constantly bickered, the abdominable snowman who always flexed his muscles, and the bratty nine-year-old were naturally funny characters with good jokes. I couldn't say the same for Shilala. I knew this even before my sister had said anything. I just didn't want to admit it because it was my part. Jimmy gave me one of his contagious smiles. He gazed at me with such a relaxed expression and warmth in his eyes that it felt silly to doubt him. I ignored the fact that I was stiff or that my throat was tight or that my skin warmed from the embarrassment of being the only struggling actress. All right, girl, you got this. Let's look at this line right here. Jimmy placed a hand on his hip. Oh my gosh, for the last time, Blake, I'm not finna go on a date with you, damn! Jimmy dragged out the last word in a high-pitched voice. I took in all the eye rolls, neck rolls, and the exaggerated claps as he recited the line. A laugh got caught in my throat. Right then, I wouldn't have been any less shocked if he had shown up to rehearsal wearing only a pair of socks. I didn't want to say it out loud, but what he just did was so ghetto. Did he really expect me to do that? My limbs grew heavy at the thought of mimicking that. He was the writer. He had the vision. He was present at the audition, and he always consulted with Veronica regarding all aspects of the show. How could I doubt him if I didn't know how else to portray successfully? Jimmy laughed when he realized I was practically gaping at him. Just like that, Francesca. Try it. We spent about 30 minutes on that one line until eventually I stopped focusing on how ridiculous I felt and sounded. As I watched Jimmy's eyes light up, or I saw him clap excitedly, I began to relax a little. Jimmy squeezed my hand. See? That's perfect. This part was made for you. My body warmed from head to toe, this time in a good way. At the following rehearsal, Veronica showered me with compliments and genuine laughter. She was practically beaming at me. You are holding back on us. You're finally embodying the character of Shilala, just like I thought you would. I didn't stop smiling for the rest of the day. Our team won the competition by 24 and a half points. Singh was serious enough that people from both teams started sobbing on stage. Winning was solely about pride because there was no prize incentive. But the prize wasn't necessary because it did feel extremely good to win. It felt great when every single time I spoke, I got the most laughter out of the entire cast. Even when I was acting without speaking, I got laughs. My cheeks ached from grinning at the audience members who came up to me to express how great I was. A guy even approached me with prayer hands, then made an exaggerating bowing gesture. That was amazing. Keep doing what you do. The weight of the compliment made me look everywhere but at him, but I accepted it nonetheless. 
Some told me that I was the show, while others asked me if I've ever taken acting lessons. Otherwise, how could I be so good? It was almost surreal. When Jimmy found me after the show, he practically spun me around in the air. I told you you'd be amazing. They loved you, Francesca. Although the heavy limbs and awkwardness never completely faded, I had no choice but to believe that Shilala was a pretty funny character. Wow. What a story. Oh. Well, thank you so much, Francesca, for sharing this story with us. Um, and with that, let's start with our first question. So following the narration you provide, it seemed that your initial internal conflict with the thought they wanted the Black girl to be sassy never really goes away. Even when you appear to fully embrace the dialogue and actions Jimmy teaches you to use. Though at the end of the piece, we see the success your character brings in the competition and the praises your performance wins you from Jimmy, your team, and even strangers. At the end, you say, I had no choice but to believe that Shilala was a pretty funny character. Looking back now, with all the excitement faded and time between then and now, do you still believe that? Or was it something that you had decided to accept at the time? Well, looking back, I'm just cringing and I kind of wish there's a part of me that regrets the character because I feel like I had some awareness about like the stereotype and there was like this feeling inside of me that I shouldn't play into it, but that, but like, I don't know, my eagerness to be a part of the show and like an eager freshman that overpowered that and you know, I didn't think the character was funny then. And I definitely don't think it's funny now. So I don't know, I guess it was kind of just like, you know, that validation, and like success and acceptance, but like at the cost of, you know, my dignity, I guess. Yeah, we definitely see that being portrayed in your story, like just Mm -hmm the confliction in between what to feel like does this feel right does it not and trying to accept if it does feel right or if it or if you know it you're maybe you should probably say something or speak up about it but then choosing not to yeah so we definitely see that strongly I mean I was you know not to say that I was new to acting like I acted before and you know my parents and friends and people at church were always saying you're really good but that was like probably the biggest acting role that I did like the biggest production like sing was like a big thing at my school and also I was new and I'm kind of a shy person I was more shy then so like I definitely wasn't the type to you know speak up on it I kind of just thought you know this is one of those things where um acting you have to step out of your comfort zone like I thought I was just uncomfortable because that's just I'm not used to this Mm -hmm. so I didn't even you know explore it I just kind of explored it I just kind of you know tolerated the discomfort and specifically the last line when you say I had no choice but to think that sassy was funny it's like I guess this is just like how it is like, okay, I did it. And, you know, I'm, 
getting the praise, but it never like felt right. And I think that's just like not having choice is such a big theme in all of this. It's like like the unconsciousness of people being like, well, you're not going to be the Crystal Princess? Was it Crystal Princess? The main lead. Yeah, that main lead. It's like, why was that never like an option? And I love that you were still like believing in yourself. And I just, when you talk about how comfortable you felt in that role and being like, no, like I have this, like this is, this is something that I can do. And then not getting that choice. I think that's, that's such a theme throughout all this is that you, you're, you know, young, all of the things that you said, new to acting, it's like, you had no choice but to be like, okay, well, I, I did the thing. Um, and yeah, I don't know, that, that last line just really sticks out to me is like having no choice but to be like, okay, I guess I did the thing. I did what everyone wanted me to. And I did a good job. But, you know, of course, now you're thinking about like, at, at what cost, for sure. Yeah, it definitely felt like I just had to accept what seemed ridiculous, especially at the concept of that being a funny character mm-hmm. with the response that it got. Like the guy at the end that came up to me and with the prayer hands, like he was a black guy too. So I couldn't even like I couldn't even say to myself like, oh, it's it's mainly like the white people at my school that are finding humor in this. It was also like the black people and their families that were like praising me for this character. So I was just like, okay, like maybe it's something I'm not seeing, which is what I was telling myself at the time, but. Right. Uh Uh-huh. I think something to kind of take away from the situation is what we accept at the moment, it can be something that we could reflect on and that we could also learn from in the future. Mm -hmm. So with that being said, throughout the piece, you introduce us to a number of people who helped you fulfill your role as Shilala. We see Shania who auditions with you, Veronica who tells you the part you're supposed to play, Jemmy who shows you the part, and your sister who reads your lines with you. Was there a particular reason you chose to highlight them specifically in your story? Um, okay, so yes, I guess you could say. As for Shania, um, she was kind of like, the kind like the person where I look to her for like knowledge or advice especially because like she was so much more experienced than me so if she said this was the case like you know I believed her you know because I I trusted what she was saying and so she was just telling me like this is how it is this is how it is this is what you need to do and I took her words at value and as for you know Jimmy and Veronica like you know they were pulling the strings so I just felt like it was important to to highlight like what they were telling me like what they were projecting and and as and as for my sister I included that bit to show that like at least one person who was also seeing that this character was not it that it was not funny so that's why I included like those people. Also, I think it's really interesting that you defend the character to her. Mm. Like she's saying exactly what you've been saying, but then when she says it, you're like, no. <laughs> yeah, I definitely got defensive. I did. I'm like, this is my character. Like, why are you talking badly about my character? Of course, she's funny. 
<laughs> but yeah, that was just a reckoning. Like the fact that like my younger sister even saw that it wasn't funny. Exactly. Yeah. And it was embarrassing too. I was embarrassed. And that's what I love about that moment. It shows that you were embarrassed. Mm-hmm. Exactly right. And I think the part for me that stuck out in the story was that scene when Jimmy was helping you really get into um, the character and just that part in which you um, say that he was speaking in a ghetto voice and just the shock that came from it. And just um, that really was just a moment that really stuck out to me because it just also really shows like out there the stereotypes that were really being inflicted on this character. And it was just a whoa moment, I guess, for me as the reader, just reading your story and just getting to that aha moment. Mm-hmm. Um, I had, you know, I had found it even stranger too, because I know like with, well, I know now, like I said, I didn't know back then. I know sometimes like, you know, they like see potential in you and they'll let you do like what you want with the character. But as for Jimmy, like he, he knew exactly how he wanted that that character to come to life and I don't know I was trying really hard to like portray like the embarrassment and the discomfort I was feeling when he was like showing me how it how it should be done it was just so cringe and I kept thinking to myself there's no way that this is going to be an actual character that's expected to be accepted but it was more than accepted so yeah. I was just like at a point I was like maybe I'm bugging like maybe like this is just fine like I don't know any better I felt like I was just being ignorant to the acting world that was another thing because I was like so new I'm like these people know like they've been sing leaders for years like they know how it goes they they're the writers you know they have the experience Yeah, and I, I think it's just important to note here, um, we don't have to get into it right now. Uh, you can you can look it up if you're unfamiliar, but uh, Francesca and I talked about, when we recorded this story, we talked about America's long history of what's called the minstrel show. Um, I don't know if anyone, you know, wants to chat about that, but there it's interesting because Francesca just said, well, maybe this is the way it goes. And unfortunately, this actually has been the way this has gone in theater, right? When we talk about blackface and um, like I just said, minstrel shows, um, that doesn't make it okay, obviously. Um, so, you know, I don't know if anyone wants to speak on that. Um, Sam, you were nodding a little bit. Do you know about this history? Yeah, yeah. It's even just, I was rewatching the show 30 Rock and it's having read several articles in conjunction with like discussing that phenomenon, like, it's just so systemic and it, it almost makes it hard to assume a lot, like consume a lot of pop culture. So it's, it's even still has that force on such a stratified level. Like it's, I can't imagine the amount of pressure you felt on just a very inter- intimate personal level. Right. Right. And because the, the way that this thing kind of continues even further in like the greater world and this is this entire story is such a prime example of it is how we give marginalized communities crumbs to kind of dance and be and fit within a stereotype and then call it representation yeah 
and call it diversity and equity and they're getting a chance, you know. And like, actually laugh at it. It's actually yeah. for entertainment yeah. of others. Yeah. And it, it definitely, um, I, yeah, I, I always say like, as soon as, as, I don't know, let me, let me know, let me know. But um, I, I think this is just like, you know, like a real world example of that, that we're not looking to like big Hollywood. We're seeing how it affects like the, the person. And like Sam said, like the, the emotional toll of having to reconcile like your identity and who you are with wanting to be painted into a box and not being allowed out of that box. They, they kept bringing you back, never for the thing, for the callbacks, never for the thing that you actually auditioned for. Yeah. Yeah. And I just assumed like, okay, that means I wasn't good enough. Somebody was better. Mm-hmm. That's how, you know, the acting world goes. Yeah, it's all purposeful. It's all systemic and it's so ingrained in these people. And I've never wanted to fight a high schooler so much. and I think a lot of these people might not have even known consciously what they were doing Francesca and I were also talking about the fact that um this was entirely run by students Mm -hmm. you know I'm like where are the adults (laughs) (laughs) um not that adults don't make a lot of mistakes (laughs) adults definitely make a lot of mistakes but I mean, I guess the thing is, too, is that in media, especially, it can be like a double edged sword in that way, where if you start doing stereotypes over and over again, that will root in. But if you use it and you start showcasing different religions, different relationships, different this, that and the other constantly and consistently in a way that it's like, oh, this is normal. Right. People will start responding to it as if it's normal. Yeah. So, yes, in a lot of ways in the hands of a lot of people, it ends up being this circus almost of just stereotypes over and over again. But we can't forget the fact that a lot of the times we can't tell a lot about Greek history, but we still know some of the plays and stuff from back then, right? As much as we don't value arts as like a society, they do stay. And it's something to be valued and to be seen as important even now, because it'll be something that even the future will remember. Yes. And I feel like you would expect for it to be more recognizable now because like we're more aware about racism in our country and like in school system and everything, but it's still like no one was able to pick it up. So with that being said, what would you like to, what would you like listeners to take away from the story? Honestly, being that I wrote this story from the perspective of like an eager freshman, I would say the takeaway should be like not to question like your your discomfort or your your anxiety or your embarrassment, even even in situations where it seems like it should be normal. Like, don't always assume that you're like 100 percent ignorant, like there's no harm in like asking questions or like talking to somebody about it. Like one thing I never did was I never like expressed to anybody, not even my friend, any of my friends or my parents that I felt like this character was like weird, like something was off, like, you know? Right. So honestly, like trust your feelings and don't like 
suppress your feelings that that's what I want people to take away from it love that Francesca and as always it is such a joy to have you here reading your story and then talking with us afterwards it's it's always you know a joy and we're we're having really important necessary conversations because of them and also get to enjoy your incredible writing I say it all the time you're one of my favorite authors and I'm like oh Francesca's gonna be on then it's gonna be good it's good okay Um, thank you so much thank you for having me thank you for asking like such thought-provoking questions I always got a little nervous but you know (laughs) (laughs) thank you thank you for coming This story is by an author who is choosing to remain anonymous. Anonymous is a writer and a student at John Jay College, and that's all you're going to get. A warning that this story touches on very sensitive topics that may be difficult to hear. Listener discretion is advised. Let's take a listen to this piece by Anonymous entitled Of Cars and Words. In the car, driving me home from my piano lesson, my mom tapped on the brake as a car cut her off. Jeez, jackass, she let out. I whipped my head to look right at my mother. Yeah, jackass, I yelled back at her. I hated it when my parents used swear words. The swear jar I implemented proved difficult to enforce as a ten-year-old. My new tactic was much more effective. Whenever my parents said a swear word, I would say it back at them. I was one of those annoying kids who was impossible to punish because I just didn't care. And the church had strict rules about profanity, which is why it bothered me so much. Anytime my parents let out a hell, damn, jackass, or even the occasional shit, I'd be right there to say it right back at them. The F word was never uttered. I rarely heard it anywhere. We weren't allowed to watch rated R movies, not even the adults, and PG-13 movies were seen sparingly. We even had a special DVD player that was supposed to edit out swear words, although it ended up just cutting out entire scenes if there was a swear word in it. We had our own way of swearing. We might say F or freak or frick to replace the real word. Even those upset my mom, though. You might as well be saying the actual word, she'd argue. Well, the actual word doesn't even come to my head, though, so it's not the same, I would counter. In middle school, one of my best friends was Catholic, and her family used to say, oh my god, sometimes. Even though they knew they weren't technically supposed to, it wasn't the worst sin. It wasn't that big of a deal. For a Mormon to take the Lord's name in vain, that's up there with the F word, or the C word, or murder. By the time I was in high school, I dismounted my high horse when it came to swear words. I learned I could get away with a really good timed, what the hell, if it made someone laugh. I swore some swears, but the actual F-words still made my stomach churn whenever I heard it. At 17, my mom asked me when I would be setting up an interview with our bishop in order for me to schedule my patriarchal blessing. A patriarchal blessing is a big deal. You get one in your life, it's like a letter from God to you about your life. They are very sacred and very personal. I told her that I wanted to prepare for my blessing by reading my scriptures more, praying more, and making sure I didn't use any swear words at all, even if it was funny. I didn't want to tell her the truth, which is that I wasn't worthy to receive my blessing. I already confessed to my bishop for masturbating, but I hadn't actually stopped masturbating, 
I didn't want to confess again, but I also didn't want to add another sin into the mix by lying to my bishop, so I told her I was waiting because of swearing. In lieu of oral repentance, I made a deal with God that I would never masturbate again, and then I would be forgiven and worthy to receive my blessing. I made an appointment after three months, proving that I had conquered masturbation for good. When the special Sunday arrived, my parents and I fasted in preparation for the upcoming spiritual experience. Before going to the patriarch's house, my parents and I drove up into the fall-colored mountains. It was too cold to sit outside, so we sat in the car, and they each shared their blessings with me. I had never heard or seen one before, because you're not supposed to share them. When you get married, you can share them with your spouse, and you can also share them with your children when you feel the time is right, but that's it. It's like a special, sacred secret from God. It was a big deal to be reading my parents' blessings. I remember thinking my dad's read a little bit like a horoscope, kind of specifically unspecific. Things like, you will marry a righteous woman in the temple and have children who you will raise in the gospel. My mom's blessing was a little more intense. After my parents talked about what their blessings meant to them, we drove down to the patriarch's house. The stake patriarch was a sweet old man with a sweet old wife. Their house was very clean and sparse. We were led into a living room where a wooden chair was placed in the center. My parents sat down on the couch and I was motioned to sit in the chair. The patriarch addressed my parents first. So tell me about your daughter, he said with such wisdom. My mom told him about how proud she was of me for preparing for this blessing and taking it seriously. My dad agreed. The patriarch asked what kind of student I was, what kind of friend I was, what extracurricular activities I enjoyed. I sat quietly and uncomfortably as my mom sang my praises and my dad agreed. The patriarch then addressed me. He told me to think of any questions I might have about my life, about things I would want to know from God. He told me to just think about them, not to say them out loud, because the answers would probably be revealed in my blessing. He told me to really pay attention to how I was feeling during the blessing and to journal about those feelings afterwards. He got up, stood behind me, put his hands on my head, as he became the vessel through which God would give me my patriarchal blessing. I couldn't think of any questions to ask God. It was too much pressure. So instead, I just focused on how I was feeling. Mostly, I felt dizzy, which I attributed to the Holy Spirit and not to the fact that it was three in the afternoon and I had been fasting since the night before. The patriarch told me God was pleased with my desire to draw close to him in preparation for this blessing. He told me my posterity would be many and they would become great leaders of the church. The blessing also told me that I was safe from Satan and his fiery darts, which I thought was cool. But it seemed like he was saying things my parents had just said about me, but in blessing language. I figured my forgiveness deal with God hadn't worked as much as I'd hoped, and God must not have a lot to say to me. I would try to be better for God. In the next few years, I tried to really buckle down. I graduated high school and all the boys I was friends with were preparing to become missionaries, and it was cool to be really into church. I read my scriptures more, I took church classes at college called Institute. I tried to date returned missionaries who I could marry and start my family of leaders with. I attended weekly church meetings and activities. I said my prayers every morning and night and still felt real bad for masturbating. I mostly stopped swearing, and anytime I saw a swear word in a book, I would cross it out and replace it with a silly word. If there was a swear word in a song, I would turn down the volume all the way during that part of the song, or else I would hit the pause button over and over to create a kind of skipping noise through the swear word. Then I moved to New York. 
I found an apartment through a Mormon housing website that was right across the street from a Mormon temple. I attended an acting conservatory for musical theater. I enjoyed singing, thus the musical aspect, but I didn't know how much I would love acting. I loved all the weird activities. They made me feel and think about humans differently. Activities like repetition, where you would stand across from someone just making eye contact until one of you pointed out something about the other one, like, your shirt is red, and then the other person would have to repeat it, my shirt is red, your shirt is red, my shirt is red, your shirt is red, my shirt is red, you're annoyed, I'm annoyed, you're confused, I'm confused. Then suddenly you were yelling at each other and noticing everything about the other person and saying it out loud, saying exactly what you were seeing and thinking to their face. It was exhilarating. After a year, I had gotten used to hearing the F word. It didn't make my stomach hurt anymore, but I still didn't say it. I was known as the Mormon girl in class, which was fine with me. I still attended church meetings, activities, and lessons weekly, and all the friends I made were through church. Toward the end of one semester, I was assigned a scene from a Patrick Shanley play called Savage in Limbo, in which two Italian women from the Bronx have a conversation in a bar. The scene had a few F words. It was one of the more difficult scenes assigned that semester, and I knew I wouldn't be able to skip over or replace any of the curse words. I was proud the scene was assigned to me, and I wanted to do a good job. During rehearsals, I started letting the F word roll out of my mouth in full form. Fuck. I fucking loved it. Very quickly, it became every other fucking word out of my fucking mouth. It was my first true taste of the secular world. There was still no coffee, no alcohol, no drugs, no sex, but swearing. A lot of swearing. I found it difficult to curb my new word choice habit when I was visiting home for Christmas. In the car with my mom, driving home from seeing a movie, she abruptly shut off the radio. What's going on with you? What do you mean? I mean, you have one more semester and then what? And then what? I repeated her question like a Meisner activity. I didn't know what. I knew I wanted to stay in New York. I knew I wanted to continue acting. I wanted to be an actor. And I was deeply worried about not being able to be an actor and remain Mormon. Acting required such fluidity and Mormonism was so rigid. I was up at night grappling with the idea that I was ruining my eternal future for some frivolous and selfish desire. I felt like I was deciding between myself and my families, both present and future for something that was not only not guaranteed, but also highly unlikely, and not being able to talk to my Mormon friends about my doubts without being told to pray, and not being able to discuss these matters with non-Mormon friends because they couldn't quite understand. The loneliness seemed all-consuming at times. I didn't know how to answer my mom's question. Uh, and then I'll audition for things and be rich and famous. My mother rolled her eyes. Okay, never mind. I don't know what you want me to say, Mom. We pulled into the garage but remained in the car. We sat in silence until my mom turned to me. It's like she paused, looking for the right way to phrase what she wanted to say. It's like you never think about your future. My stomach dropped and my breath tightened and tears started forming in my eyes. Mom, I think about it every fucking day. My mother took in the sentence. The word. Her face got red. She threw off her seatbelt, opened the car door, and was about to get out when she turned back to me, got within two inches of my face, pointed her finger, and said, Don't you. 
start using that fucking word with me. She got out of the car and headed for the house. I panicked. Mom, please don't go inside. Please. I'm not going to follow you. Please talk to me, Mom. I'm not going to follow you. She turned around to look me in the face from across the garage and yelled, good, and slammed the door shut. Fine, I yelled to a closed door. I turned around and stormed out of the garage right as it started snowing without grabbing my phone or my coat. I was crying and freezing and the snow started to get thicker, but I couldn't bring myself to go home. I ended up at my friend Bobby's house with soaking hair and mascara stains under my eyes. He let me hang out for a couple of hours before he got a text message from my little sister asking if he'd seen me. I asked Bobby for a ride home. I walked into an eerily quiet house and found my mom aggressively whipping some cake batter in the kitchen. I approached with caution. Do you want to talk? Her eyes widened with feigned innocence as she continued to whisk and replied, about what? I rolled my eyes and told her never mind. I turned to go to my room when she pointed the eggy whisk and yelled, don't you ever do that to me again. Do you understand me? Don't you ever walk out like that. You have no idea what you've put me through. Tears started streaming down her face. Okay, I'm sorry, I offered. She continued to whisk. I tried to offer more. I just, it feels like you want me to have my whole life figured out right now. That's not it. But you don't understand that the decisions you make today are going to affect the rest of your life. Of course I understand that. Then why are you making the decisions you're making? She meant more than the swear words. She knew I hadn't been going to church every Sunday and ignoring the rules of the Sabbath in general. In the car when I was 17, reading my mom's patriarchal blessing, I noted it stressed the importance of remaining close to the church. A line told her that her life would be in danger if she were to stray from the church. When my mom was 19, she had premarital sex and got premarital pregnant. Forced seems like a strong word, so I'll say she was heavily encouraged to get married. On the day of that wedding, she told me there wasn't one picture where anyone was smiling. Her father even came up to her and said, I don't give this marriage six months. My mom described this man as kind of a drunk, always cheating, and said that he would slap her around. But she didn't want her dad to be right, so she stayed with him for a year. After finally divorcing him, she was then a 21-year-old Mormon divorcee with an almost two-year-old living at home with a father who wasn't thrilled about her circumstances. What was she supposed to do? Another man came along. He was charming and held esteemed positions in the church. He courted my mother. He prayed with her and told her he knew they were meant to be together. He wanted to marry her, so they married. The first night of their honeymoon, he beat her unconscious. When they returned, he severely beat and traumatized both her and her son. It was three months before she was able to get away. The getaway included having someone drive her car while wearing a wig, while my mother switched cars and drove to a city four hours south. Back in the kitchen, I look at my mom desperately. I understand why she's scared that I'm not going to church every week. But I tell her I don't believe I'm making wrong decisions. I don't wake up thinking, what bad decisions can I make today? People don't make wrong decisions on purpose. Her eyes widened. Oh, really? They don't? They don't. 
You don't think so, she started yelling, because I'm pretty sure that I just ran over the neighbor's dog, but I'm too chicken shit to go over and tell them. She dropped the whisk on the table and started to sob. I stared at her with my mouth agape. I was out driving in the snow, she continued through her snobs, looking for you. Mom, I tried to interject, but she had collapsed onto the floor and the words came flooding out. She was driving in the snowstorm when she thought she hit something and couldn't tell through the snow if she saw the something run away. She got out of the car but didn't see anything, so she kept driving. She was still worried that she injured an animal and went back around the block again to look. She got home and started to have a panic attack about the possibility that she heard something. My sister was able to calm her down and even took the car out into the snowstorm to triple check nothing was outside hurting and alone. And that's when she texted Bobby. I sat on the kitchen floor with my mom as she cried and cried. She told me that she was too ashamed to tell the neighbors and that she wouldn't be able to live with herself if she had hurt their dog. I told her we didn't have to tell anyone and assured her the dog was probably fine. The next day at church, my sister Debbie went to Sunday school where her Sunday school teacher apologized to the class for being so tired. He told the class about how he had been up all night because their dog died. We didn't do the right thing. We never told the neighbors. The right thing. While I was downright terrified when my mother yelled the F word so close to my face, thinking back about it, I feel proud. Proud that she is her own sometimes. That the church isn't all of her. When I would swear at my mom as a ten-year-old, she didn't slap me like a lot of parents might. I think there was a part of her, perhaps small, that was proud. Oh, wow. Wow, 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 wow. Check out that last line, guys, right? Mm -hmm. It's heavy. I mean, the whole piece, of course, but, Mm -hmm. you know. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Yep. And really quick before we get started, Life Out Loud just wants to recognize that these kinds of stories can touch people in unexpected ways. And we want to share with listeners that if you or someone you know is experiencing family violence or anything in that field, there are resources available to you. Sanctuary for Families is an organization in New York that aids in this, and they can be reached through their website, sanctuaryforfamilies.org, or via phone at 800 621 Four six seven three. So anonymous, in this piece, you utilize many time gaps to convey your story. You begin the story from when you would try to prevent your parents from cursing by yelling them back at 10 years old, to when you were 17 and taking part in your patriarchal blessing, to when you moved to New York for college, and then finally to Christmas break, when you and your mother discussed your future. Can you tell us about your writing process in choosing to connect all these moments together? Um, sure, yeah, thanks. I think that um, uh, in a class we were talking about perspectives. And so I think it started out as um, like the perspective of the 10 year old um, in writing in that. And I didn't love um, writing in the perspective of a 10 year old, it didn't seem to like come out um, very naturally for me. So like writing about it in a hindsight manner worked better. Um, 
and then just thinking about swearing <laughs> swear words and the progression that swearing has taken or like the through line through my life of uh which I guess can be like boiled down to like language in general but um specifically swear words so interesting so it started off with you talking about yourself in a 10 year old's perspective or you as a 10 year old perspective and then it grew into something of you looking back at at 10 years old and then into the future yeah with that being said the way you juxtapose your religious life with your life in theater showcases two different versions of yourself that may at the surface appear to be directed directly at odds with one another we see you at the beginning of the piece getting your patriarchal blessing and the steps you took to prepare yourself for that, asking for forgiveness, reading scriptures, praying, and so on. Then you cut to your move to New York and you found love for acting and of course cursing. Have you been able to resolve those two aspects of your identity or is something, or is it still something you're working on? Um, for that question. Uh, yeah, well, I'm no longer religious or, um, you know, Mormon or anything. So I guess that's how that's resolved. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, but it was like, uh, I think part of this story was also um, a catharsis in that kind of being able, being far enough uh, removed, like in time from, you know, leaving a religion to be able to kind of like look at it, look back on it and put it in story form and to like have kind of um the oversight of that and like the processing for myself of like oh yeah this is how that story goes i feel like i want to say something but i don't know how to like um put it into words but it, it it really is just kind of cool to look back on your like look back on where you are now and be able to see so many of the steps that you took to get to where you are um even if like you didn't realize like how hard it was and then you look back and you're like oh yeah that was definitely strange or there was so much strain in that part of my life and now it's like huh things are pretty pretty chill with that that aspect at least now and I feel like we definitely see that in in your piece and specifically with like you acknowledging that your your mom is proud to a degree it's like you know because one of those main concepts is like hmm, maybe it wasn't like maybe it's a little bit more like settled now it and you, I feel like you could feel that at the end of the piece for sure oh I'm glad yeah I feel like the <clears throat> what I was wanted to like get across was just kind of like like trying to explain a, a patriarchal blessing in a couple paragraphs but also like the layers that come with like like being Mormon and then you know sinning but not telling or confessing and uh not all the way and then your mom and like just kind of like the layers and so like how that how the layers kind of have to be unpeeled yeah be a weird journey <laughs> was it difficult for you to figure out what to keep in in terms of like explaining your religion explaining your relationship with your mom or was it like easy once you figured out where you wanted the story to go um, I still actually struggle. I don't know that this is like my final draft because oh. I um, still, even like reading it for this, there are parts that um, I have on my computer that are like underlined in red and different stuff I want to put in and take out. Um, so it still feels a little unsettled about how much I need to explain or how much I need to 
let be interpreted, you know, kind of, um, yeah, it still feels like a push pull that I'm not all the way comfortable with yet. That's fair. Yeah. That's, yeah, that's that. <laughs> really symbolic too, of just kind of the struggle you portrayed throughout the story too, of you're still trying to self-select and, and, and that's a, I think it's a really profound thing to try and share too. So the story of your mother and the dog was an interesting parallel to the religious experience you described. Uh, we may think we know the right answer or deserve judgment. Maybe that's a perception we have and not the whole picture. Um, while you mentioned that you never did the right thing by not telling the neighbors, it was kind of interesting as a reader to see how difficult a position it actually was. After a fairly traumatic evening in and of itself, were you all in a right place to effectively deal with the neighbors uh, anyway? Was she even responsible? Uh, she had already done so much to make sure everything was okay. Would confessing to something she didn't do really even be fair? Um, has writing about this experience shifted your perceptions on yourself uh, or the people involved as well? Mm. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> I think um, part of the, like this story, the first time I remember telling this story was um, kind of right after it happened. I came back to New York and um, was telling my friend and like we both ended up um, kind of in tears laughing um, at <laughs> the absurdity um, because the <laughs> um, the dog died and then um, the neighbors made uh, you know a Facebook post mourning their dog and my sister and I did not want my mom to know and so we logged into my mom's Facebook and deleted that family as a friend. <laughs> Oh, oh. <laughs> oh my god! <laughs> and uh, my mom didn't find out for a while. <laughs> um, and when she finally did find out, she called me, and she was very emotional, and she was like, "You girls love me so much." <laughs> and then she was like, "We're gonna take this to our graves," and I was like, "I've already told all my friends." <laughs> And now all our listeners. <laughs> Sometimes, I never mind. <laughs> My sister, I don't know if you ever saw Beethoven. Oh. There's a part where a girl gets really upset and she says, dog killer. <laughs> Sometimes, oh my God. <laughs> Sometimes we might say that to my mom. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> so uh, to answer your question, I don't think anyone feels super bad about not doing the right thing. Um, and maybe my family is a little uh, macabre. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Sounds like a good thing to bond over, actually. Yeah. yeah. Well, and sometimes things like this, there's nothing to do but embrace the absurdity. Yeah. And, mm -hmm. You know, like just the dark. Yes. Yeah. That you. The there's irony. just nothing else. If you let it just take over you. Yeah. You know, maybe it's one of those things. And I, yeah, I know that. Um, she's like allergic to a lot of animals but is still like such an animal lover and has like um, yeah I know that it's probably something that's like the floodgates are too high to like if you do let it in emotionally right. it could be kind of all-consuming in a way that's just not um, productive I don't know yeah. <laughs> and lastly you might have answered this question to us but just in case 
is there anything that you would like the listeners to take away from this story? Um, I'm not sure. I know that for me, um, with like writing it and kind of going over it, and especially with this past year and my uh, specific relationship with my family, it's um, been uh, walking that line between like maybe anger and love and um, being mad or being angry with, you know, things that I believed or that my family still believes or having this kind of um, dealing with this unpacking of um, anger, but also honoring that anger um, while still trying to maintain genuine, authentic and loving relationships um, is really difficult. And I would hope that, um, I don't know, that even if reading it, someone else feels like they're less alone in that way. (laughs) Yeah. yeah. Well, with that, thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for your story. And thank you so much for such a wonderful interview. Thank you, guys. This is really fun. Thanks so much. Thank you so much. Thank you. That concludes our fifth episode of the fifth season, Character Development. We are all so excited to bring you new stories soon, amplifying these younger voices from backgrounds you don't normally hear from. You can always find out more at www.lifeoutloudpodcast.com or by searching Life Out Loud Podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or YouTube. We also have an Instagram and Facebook if you want to get some behind-the-scenes action. We'd like to thank everyone who helps make this possible, including our sound engineers and editors, our episode writers, our website developers, everyone behind the scenes here at Life Out Loud. And to our audience, we hope you love these stories as much as we did. It was a joy to bring them to you. A very special thank you to everyone listening in. We'll see you soon and good night. Good night. Good night. Good night. <laughs>